0: Welcome, everyone, to what is actually an irregularly scheduled rerun. Uh, This show does have regularly scheduled reruns, but this happens to not be one of them. Uh, Unfortunately, Amanda and I are on the road. We're just visiting some friends and family and fully expected to be able to do a brand new episode today, but ran into technical difficulties primarily focused on incredibly slow internet. Where we are, you know, we're at a remote location, Things can be a little iffy, and it turned out that it's so bad that it's logistically impossible to do all of the downloading that needs to be done in order to uh, get a new show up and running. So if you are hearing the sound of my voice right now, then it means that I, at the very least, overcame the obstacle of uploading a pre-produced show uh, for you. And, of course, we also did a bonus episode for members, as is promised with all uh, rerun episodes, comes paired a members-only bonus episode to kind of make up for it. So, today's episode is a good one. I I think it's definitely worth your time. Uh, It's nice to remember the the puppeteers in this puppet show of a uh, government we're living under and that's what today's episode is all about so i hope you enjoy that and if you are not already a member and would like to become one so that you can of course support the show and all of the hard work we do and get all of the uh, members only bonus content especially today's episode which i must say is a bit of a doozy uh, I'm not going to tell you what it's about today, uh, I, I, might, I may tell you sometime in the near future, but it's a big one. We, we like to get in deep on issues, and today's was definitely one of those. So if you'd like access to that, you can join up either at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft or go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the Contribute tab for all the details. And now, enjoy.
1: One of the things that he wanted to buy was an America that more closely fitted their political point of view. So they poured money into that project. This program is made possible by the
0: members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Start Making Sense!, The Humorless Queers!, The Majority Report, and Intercepted.
2: Leonard Leo is currently on leave from the Federalist Society to help shepherd Gorsuch's nomination. In addition to nominating Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, President Trump has 123 other federal judgeships to fill, because Senate Republicans blocked many of Obama's nominees. Eric Lipton, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, Why don't you start off by um, talking about uh, the conservative shaping of the judiciary, and particularly the role of the Federalist Society?
3: Sure. You know, first off, I mean, you introduced them at one point by describing them as a right-wing group. I wouldn't call the Federalist Society a right-wing group. I think that they are a group of conservative legal scholars who see themselves as an alternative voice. And they really got started through law schools in the United States where there was some concern by law professors that there was not a, a forum for conservative people to sort of, you know, meet and discuss theories relative to the court that that could sort of be an alternative to the more liberal, dominant thought in, in the court system. But the Federalist Society has grown into an organization that has incredible influence in the United States. It is It has many lawyers who are lawyers for, working for different corporations, and it has judges that are members, and it, it, it is ga- has gatherings around the United States. That pull together conservative legal minds and it 's funded by a combination of, of conservative foundations that are you know that want to try to change various standards in American society as well as corporations that that like the ideas of the Federalist society in, in terms of limited governing and and sort of trying to to knock down certain federal regulations so what the thing that is, is sort of interesting at this moment is that is that the, the, the judicial philosophy of the Federalist Society and of groups that are related to it in the conservative world, they are better positioned at this moment than they probably have ever been in, in modern times. And because of a, a series of, of events that have occurred. You've got the president who is essentially allowed them to help pick Supreme Court nominees and, and told them that he's going to also allow them to provide input to other judges. You've got a Congress that is controlled by Republicans. You have state governments throughout the United States, where the majority of the governors and legislatures are under Republican control. And you have more vacancies right now going into this new term for a president than you've had in any time going back to Carter. And also, you have more judges who are near retirement age than any time in decades. So, we, President Trump and the Republicans are better positioned at this moment to reshape both the federal and state judiciaries than they probably have ever been. And the Federalist Society and, and Leonard Leo are sitting there ready to help that process.
2: And can you talk about um, the foundations that are supporting the Federalist Society, like the Koch brothers, uh, like Mel- uh, Richard Scaife?
3: Yes, I mean, they, they, you know, it, you got everything from Google and Microsoft, which are donors to the Federalist Society, and as well as major energy companies like Chevron or Devon, which are very, uh, you know, uh, especially Devon is, is trying to challenge much of the Obama administration's regulatory agenda when it comes to the environment. But then you have also a lot of very conservative uh, family foundations that, you know, like uh, the, the, the Mercer Foundation are, um, are, the, uh, the, the Koch Brothers Foundation that, that you see their giving, if you look at their, at their donor patterns, as a way to try to influence American society. And, uh, and, and clearly, I mean, you, the Federalist Society is a forum for these lawyers to discuss legal approaches that they can then use and, and, and to fine tune them. And, and they, 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 the Federalist Society argues that it is a, nonpartisan 501c3 that doesn't you know is not a, is not an advocacy organization but it's pretty clear that they have a very conservative legal philosophy when you when you look at the at the forums that they hold and the debates that they hold and the people that are that are members of it, and uh, and you look at the judges that they also align themselves with, and I mean Leonard 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 is a is a is a is almost has a mythical status almost, in in in, in the legal circles of the United States. I mean, you come to an event in Washington that that the Federalist Society puts on, um, and that Leonard Leo is is helping organize, and you're you're likely to encounter you know at least when Judge Scalia was alive. I mean Judge Scalia Judge Thomas. I mean, he he is uh, he is very well respected among that circle and uh, has a great deal of influence. And how did he get to have this uh, influence? Uh, uh, he's almost like the go-to guy. Uh, uh, he also shepherded through apparently the confirmations of both Justice Roberts and uh, Justice Samuel Alito as well. How did he get to that uh, that position? I mean, the Federalist Society is essentially—I mean, a fraternity implies that it's male, but a, a fraternity—you know—could be, say, sorority of. Of like-minded lawyers, uh, it's a club, and and so it's essentially a private club of like-minded lawyers, and be they judges or, or corporate lawyers or academic lawyers, and they they have regular meetings and conferences, and and Leonard Leo is sort of like the you know the he, the head the head counselor of this group, and they they very well he's a very respected guy, he's a very intelligent guy. He's also in surprisingly for Washington very low key. you don't hear his voice in the debates at all. you don 't see him, you don't see him quoted. he's very much behind the scenes, but is has a great deal of respect among this this universe of folks. He really came to the prominence in at first in in the in George w. Bush's administration when he was named to serve as a as a sort of intermediary for Catholics and the Republican Party. Uh, and he himself is Catholic and a very, you know, serious about his beliefs. And then during he he transitioned from that role to early in the Bush administration, they had trouble getting through some Supreme Court nominees. And Harriet Myers was nominated and then backed out. And there was frustration among conservatives that Bush was not taking advantage of the power that he had to fill the federal courts. So uh, Leonard came in and Leonard Leo and. And he helped, he helped set up a process to not only identify candidates that were conservative and, and that, and that they could get confirmed, but also a process to then build public support across the United States to execute on those nominations once they were made. So that's when Judicial Crisis, or then called Judicial Confirmation Network, was created. Leonard Leo has always been associated with this group. He helps find the money. And they they began a public relations campaign nationally to get the conservative judges confirmed once, you know, folks like Leonard had helped get them nominated.
2: You begin your piece, Eric, the front-page piece of the Sunday uh, New York Times. Um, by saying, deep into the Senate's 68-page questionnaire of Judge Gorsuch, the Supreme Court nominee was asked to describe how he had come to President Trump's attention. And he said—the first thing he wrote was, I was contacted by Leonard Leo. So can you also talk as you are now talking about the allied organizations and those that Leonard Leo works with like John Malcolm of the Heritage Foundation and Corkery the Washington lawyer who along with her husband oversees the judicial crisis network and you say related dark money groups that also support
3: the cause Yeah I mean I as a as a reporter and as a person that believes in transparency uh, and also likes someone that likes to kind of, you know, to decipher riddles. I find it really interesting to just observe this, this kind of aligned parties and, and the, the various roles that they have set up. So you have, you know, the Federalist Society and Leonard that's playing a role in helping identify candidates to nominate and to, you know, bring them to the administration and to get the process started. And then you essentially have a handoff. Because he is a, he is a 501c3. You know, he comes from that world where you're not advocates. Then you have this handoff to this group, the Judicial Crisis Network, which is an advocacy organization that's spending, you know, something upwards of $4 million on, on television commercials and radio and other media, particularly in the states where there are Senate Democrats who are up for re-election next year in states where Trump won. Okay. So these are Democrats that live in red states. Who are vulnerable, and we're and Gorsuch is going to need their votes in order to get confirmed, uh, because otherwise, unless you know the sixty vote rule is overturned, uh, in order to get you know to prevent the block, uh, you know he doesn't need it for a majority. He needs it to get to get the vote to the floor, uh, and so um, it, that's where Judicial Crisis Network comes in. This is an organization that. It was set up in approximately 2005, and it's a dark money group. They will not tell you who their donors are. But when you look at their at their 990, which is their tax form—and I happen to conveniently have a copy here—and um, the thing that's so interesting about it to me is is that, uh, uh, they you know, they show that they had a budget of, in 2014, of 5.7 million, which isn't that much, but that's just one of many aligned organizations. And then you go to the page um, that shows who their donors are, and it's called the Schedule B of the 990. And uh, and if you ask for it, you can get it, although if you look in the normal tax records, you won't find it. And you see that all of their money came from two donors, and, but although the, the names of the donors aren't there. So, you know, 5.75 million came from two people. And then you look at their 990 as well, and you say, OK, how many people do you have that work for you? How many volunteers do you have? Zero employees, zero volunteers. So wh- So you sort of wonder, well, what is this group? I mean, it has zero employees, zero volunteers. All of its money come from two donations. So how much is this really a grassroots organization, or how much is it a, an organization that takes checks from players that want to influence the, the federal judiciary, and, and then funnel the money through this organization to try to create an appearance that it's really a grassroots organization? And, and that's something that— you know
2: who that, those two people are?
3: Well, if you reverse engineer the, the federal—the uh, IRS records, which I did, um, you could find—you could backwards—you could find this organization called the Wellspring Committee, OK? So here's the interesting thing. The Wellspring Committee, which is also—it's based in Virginia. Uh, is run and the signed document Wellspring. This is their 990. Is Anne Corkery. Okay, so Anne Corkery is listed signed here as the president of the Wellspring Committee. Okay, on the Judicial Crisis Network, this document who signs it as a treasurer? Neil Corkery. That's her husband. Okay, so her husband helps run the Judicial Crisis Network. Anne Corkery runs Wellspring Committee, and then you look at the back of their schedule. Their, who do they who does who they give who does the Wellspring Committee give money to? Oh, so they gave 5.775 million to the Judicial Crisis Network in 2014. Wait a second. That's exactly the same amount of the money that the Judicial Crisis Network spent in, in 2014. So this—Ann this, Corker gave all of the money to—and so then you wonder, OK, where does Wellspring get its money from? Well then you begin this process, because of the—you know, the federal, the federal government doesn't require disclosure of donors, you end up in a brick wall. because. You can't find out Wellspring, where Wellspring Committee gets its money from, and, and, you, and you end up in the dark money, you know, circle. But basically, what you see is that this is an interconnected network that is moving money around in a way to try to hide who the original donors were, and that it's—and it's, it's, the, and the connections between the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network and Ann Corkery and Neil Corkery and Leonard Leo and the connection between Judicial Crisis Network and the Wellspring Committee They're all interconnected. And, and now, I mean, they have their, they certainly have the right to influence this process. I mean, it's a democracy. You raise money, you spend money. I just think it's interesting to bring light to this and to sort of this, to examine this network. And, and, you know, that's their right to, to do it. And they're doing it.
4: the reclusive hedge fund billionaire who's the secret power behind Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Jane Mayer. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Great to be with you. Well, the reclusive hedge fund billionaire behind the Trump presidency is Robert Mercer. In The New Yorker this week, you have the first in-depth report on this mystery man and his daughter, Rebecca. That's Rebecca with a K. To do this story, you spoke with the Prince of Darkness himself, Stephen Bannon. What was that like? And what did he tell you about Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca?
1: Well, I was really on on the edge of my seat to see what what Bannon was like, and uh, pacing around and waiting for him to call and finally, he did and you know he turns out to be quite engaging and a lot of fun to talk to. I mean, I guess this we should have predicted this because really somebody who 's gotten ahead the way he has has to have some pretty good skills anyway he 's a lot of fun to talk to he 's interesting he he said about the Mercers. That they had launched the Trump revolution and that they had, more than any other donor in the last four years, had the biggest impact of of anyone in, in putting Trump in power. So wow. he was pretty out front
4: about the whole thing. So you say Bannon was a lot of fun to talk to. Is Robert Mercer a lot of fun to talk to? Robert Mercer wouldn't speak with me, and, and that's
1: not unusual. He doesn't speak almost to anyone. Um, he actually, I quote someone, uh, he said to a colleague at some point where he works at a, a, uh, an incredibly lucrative hedge fund in Long Island, and he said that he prefers the company of cats to humans. So, um, and he, so he's, he's a, a very terse speaker when he speaks at all.
4: You say he heads an incredibly lucrative hedge fund. Who exactly is Robert Mercer, and how rich is he?
1: He is the co-CEO, with one other man, of something called Renaissance Technologies. It's a hedge fund, as I said, in Long Island, and... um, It's hard to know exactly how rich he is, but he is listed by institutional investor as making approximately $135 million a year, and that would have been true at least for the last 10 years or so. So he's getting up there in the billionaire category, I would think, but he's also a pretty big spender for someone who never speaks and has this kind of austere exterior He's been described as having the sort of the the personality of an icy cold poker player by the one person that did interview him, Sebastian Malaby, who wrote a book called um, More Money Than God about hedge funds. But anyway, for for someone like that, he has some pretty high-flying spending habits, even if he's not speaking. You get the feeling of is that Robert Mercer, who grew up quite middle class, hit it really big when he went to this hedge fund, and it wasn't until he was in his 40s. And it enabled him and his family to pretty much indulge any kind of material whim they had. And they all of them went off in different directions on incredible scales of shopping sprees and one of the things that he wanted to buy and that his middle daughter rebecca wanted to buy was an america that more closely fitted their political point of view so they poured money into that project
4: let's talk about that political project you you say robert mercer basically never speaks. Nevertheless, you were able to find out quite a lot about his political ideas. I just want to ask you about a couple of these. What does Robert Mercer say about racism in the United States?
1: This was the challenge, really, of doing this piece, cracking the code of who he is and what he believes in. And finally, I got lucky because one of the people who's worked in his firm for the last 20 years finally got angry at him for the way he's trying to influence American politics. And they had a big fight and it's opened up a little bit of a glimpse into what Mercer really believes. And among the things that he believes are that, White racism doesn't exist in America. He says there's only, there is no white racism. There's only black racism. And he says that the civil rights movement has made blacks less well-off than before the civil rights movement. He thinks that the Civil Rights Act was one of the great mistakes in, in modern American history.
4: What does he say about the dangers of nuclear war?
1: He got into an argument with somebody he worked with in which he argued that Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and nuclear war in general were not as bad as people think. It's survivable, he argues, and not only that, but the radiation from it, he suggests from the fallout is good for people. So he'd say, you know, while in the blast zone, it wasn't so great for the Japanese, he was arguing outside of the blast zone, he would claim it was great for the Japanese health, which is just um, a position that has been, (laughs) there's there's just no scientific support from it, at least from Conventional scientific authorities. I, I, I spoke to the national the Association for the Advancement of Science, and they said, no, there's, there, they said,
4: there is no such support for this. They said no. <laughs> and, and you have a, a, let's call it a fascinating story about what he says about the value of cats.
1: He, he has, according to his colleagues, a, a theory of humans, which is that they have no inherent value that a human being is only worth as much as they can earn. So he would argue, for instance, and has, that he earns, you know, two million times or thousands of times more than a school teacher. So that makes him that much more valuable. And that school teachers are, are marginally valuable People on welfare, he suggests, have no value; they have negative value. And then he argues, though, that cats have value because they provide—watching them provides pleasure to people, unlike people. So um, it's a—it's a, it's a very—he—he's very, a—you a, know—we're sort of mocking him. But Bob Mercer is a brilliant computer scientist who figured out a way to use computers to kind of game the stock market and commodities markets worldwide and figure out how to build predictive models so that his firm would know where the markets are going and be able to trade on it in advance. And they've just plain minted money ever since that. So he's he's brilliant at the things he's brilliant at, um, science and, and computer science and math. But he has really strange and almost absent human skills. I mean, people say, that he can't look at you when you're in conversation with him, and it's painful for him. It seems almost to, to to have to converse. So he's an odd mixture of things.
4: Robert Mercer is reclusive, but his daughter Rebecca does not seem to be. You report that she lives in a $28 million apartment at Trump Place on Manhattan's Upper West Side. You report that she homeschools her children and that she's, quote, consumed by politics. You say Trump has embraced her in a big way. Why exactly is that? Well... Um, Because the Mercers embraced Trump in a big
1: way. And it didn't happen until Ted Cruz um, fell apart as a candidate. First, they were backing Cruz. But when his campaign went down and many other conservatives were saying, we're not going to back Donald Trump, the the Mercers leapt right on board with him. They look at him as a, you know, a vessel and not necessarily the best vessel, just the only one they could find. Because they just can't stand the Clintons, Um, and it's it's beyond the normal level that that some people have. Bob Mercer has told at least three people who I interviewed, and one of them's quoted about it on the record in the story, that he thinks that, that the Clintons are murderers. He thinks they've actually had their opponents killed. In a way, you can see similarities between him and Trump in that they both are susceptible to conspiracy theories and, and they their information flow is from kind of dubious sources often. And, and the result are these opinions that are, you know, unconventional in the extreme.
4: And Rebecca, let's talk about Rebecca, the what should we call her?
1: The public Mercer. Yeah. So she is really an activist and outspoken, at least within Republican circles. Again, she didn't give me an interview and she doesn't give interviews either. The Mercers disdain the media um, and have tried to build up, build up their own. They, they, they are the principal owners of Breitbart News. So Rebecca, is, um, she's hard driving. She is impatient. She's a graduate of Stanford. She's very bright. And she has a graduate degree from Stanford too. Uh, she worked for a little while in her father's firm as a trader, and then went on, got married to a, a partner on Wall Street, who, and they had these four kids that she homeschools now. But at any rate, she helped pour a lot of money, family money, into backing Romney in 2012. And when he didn't win, she was said to be incensed and kind of took matters into her own hands, turned on sort of the political consultants and the pollsters, and decided that they didn't know what they were doing and that she would build up her own operation. And that's when the Mercers really stepped up and started becoming a force in American politics.
4: So this is an important element of your story. The Mercers fund candidates, but that's not the only part of their political spending. The other part is equally significant. What should we call it? The organizational and ideological apparatus. Let's talk about that.
1: Since 2008, between 2008 and 2016, they put $77 million into American politics, and a lot of that went into building up a few organizations. One, they put $10 million into Breitbart News, which became a force on the right of sort of this economic nationalism of the type that – that Bannon has been pushing um, and that that Trump's been pushing. And it's it's also been very closely associated with the alt-right and kind of tips over every now and then into kind of white supremacism and anti-Semitism and some of the other pretty unpleasant isms. Then they also built up their own data company. It's a political data analytics company called Cambridge Analytica, which is kind of like a propaganda machine almost. It it, it claims to have a tremendous amount of information on American voters, something like 2,000 points of data on 220 million individual Americans. And with that data, it's able to send out social media messages that are sort of targeted to people to try to push them politically in, in a direction. And then they built up, among the other things that's been very important in the last campaign, they founded an organization called the Government Accountability Institute. And it produced the book Clinton Cash, which really went a long ways towards defining Hillary Clinton as corrupt. So it was the the playbook, in a way, for how Trump and the other Republicans took on Hillary Clinton came out of that that book and, and, and that organization which was funded by the Mercers.
5: our conversation with Jane Mayer, staff writer at The New Yorker. Her latest piece is headlined The Reclusive Hedge Fund Tycoon Behind the Trump Presidency, How Robert
2: Mercer Exploited America's Populist Insurgency. The piece looks at how the secretive billionaire reshaped the political landscape. One of the companies heavily funded by Robert Mercer is Cambridge Analytica, which claims it has psychological profiles of over 200 million American voters. The firm was hired by the Trump campaign to help it target its message to potential voters. Steve Bannon even served on the company's board. This is Cambridge Analytica's CEO, Alexander Nix, speaking earlier this year.
6: We started to look at issue models, predicting which issues, social and political, appeal to which members of the target audience, which voters. We actually assigned different issues to every adult in the entire United States. We could then take these models and put them into a matrix, a little bit like the dental health example, where we can categorize people or segment them according to how they're likely to behave. Core Trump supporters, top right, may be uh, more susceptible to a donation solicitation. Get out the vote, people who are going to vote Republican, but they need persuading to do so. Persuasion audiences, people who need shifting a little bit from the center towards the right. Once we've identified a segment, we can then sub-segment them by the issues that are most relevant to them and then start to target them with specific messages.
2: Cambridge Analytica CEO Alexander Nix. Um, So, Cambridge Analytica has claims to have psychological profiles of over 200 million American voters. Jane Mayer, tell us its significance. Steve Bannon was on its board, funded by the Mercers.
1: Well, again, this is part of if you look at the history, what happened was after 2012, when, when Obama was reelected, despite the fact that the Mercers had put millions of dollars into trying to defeat him, they were upset and they wanted to try to get better political tools with more traction. So they put money into Breitbart. They put money into the Government Accountability Institute. And the third prong was Cambridge Analytica. It was at that point, um, they concluded, and so did many others, that that the Republican Party's data analytics for for running campaigns were lagging behind those that the Democrats had. The Democrats, Obama, had a famously good sort of computer operation um, and, um, and and data team, and so they tried to. They decided we'll run our own. They bought a company. They basically invested heavily in building and it's an offshoot of an existing English company called Strategic Communication Laboratories. And the, the British company had been involved in uh, psychological warfare operations for uh, militaries and international elections and um kind of some some pretty interesting and sneaky seeming things, um, which raised a lot of eyebrows when when its offshoot was purchased, basically, uh, created by this one hedge fund family. Um you, you know, when I looked into this, it's it it seemed that there was uh less than meets the eye in many ways so far. Um the uh Alexander Nix, who was running Cambridge Analytica um is a great salesman and he's got this pitch that makes it sound like something from you know the movie the matrix or something that that they're going to be you know conducting psychological warfare with this propaganda machine in this country the truth is during the trump campaign they never used any of their their so-called you know secret psychometric methods they um simply performed like any other kind of data analytics company and and the stuff they did was 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 no different from what the Democrats do and and, and other campaigns do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe at some point they'll have some superpowers that have yet to be revealed, but they, they aren't there yet.
7: I was just reading Jane Meyer's new profile, The New Yorker, of Robert Mercer, who's, of course, the billionaire backer of the Trump campaign, um, someone who I think Steve Bannon said, without whom the Trump would not be the president. He's connected to a firm that Steve Bannon is also connected to, which is called Cambridge Analytica, which is um, – basically a data data broker firm that works for politicians people running for office they boast at this company of having detailed personal profiles on more than 200 million Americans so these companies that uh aggregate information and buy large data sets about individuals are going to seek out Comcast and Time Warner and pay, you know, however much it costs to buy your entire internet history. This is going to make manipulating elections way easier. Um, The possibilities are really very frightening. Also, of course, law enforcement, immigration, customs, credit reporting agencies, and your boss will also be able to buy this data. Um, So, you know... You say that you're homesick. Your boss buys information about you showing that, in fact, you were watching Netflix all day. Um, you couldn't have been that sick if you weren't asleep, et cetera, et cetera. So what can people do? You can do two things. First of all, you can protect your own privacy immediately by using Tor um, or a VPN, uh, virtual private network, which will shield your internet history from your ISP. So they will only see the IP address of your VPN provider. They will see nothing else about what you do on the internet. And there are some internet routers actually that run all traffic through a VPN so that no matter what device you're connecting to um, the internet from, whether it's your phone or your iPad or your laptop or your desktop or whatever, um, even your Roku, all of that traffic will go through a VPN. You can also, and you must also, use the free browser extension HTTPS Everywhere, which is something that uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation developed. It is free. It works on Chrome and Firefox. And it makes sure that every single website that has encrypted, um, that that uses encryption and has encryption enabled is a way... It means that you'll always connect in an encrypted fashion to those websites, um, which is important because then if you do that, the ISP will only be able to see that you accessed, for example, NewYorkTimes.com. It will not be able to see what you read on NewYorkTimes.com, what specific article. Don't let them hold your mind. They want to
8: control mankind. Seems like your only intention is fly the earth. Trust in their deceit Your mind causes your defeat And so you become an invention To distort the search Propaganda and lies Is a plague in our lives How much more victimized Before we realize It's mind control Mind control
6: Corruption of your thoughts.
8: So we've heard a lot less, uh, Vicky, of the Mercers than we have, I guess, some other Republican stalwarts. Uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, makes a little cameo in your piece. Uh, of course, the Koch brothers. Uh, there are others, right? But uh, g- give us a sense of of when we talk about the Mercers, who are we talking about specifically from that family, and and how long have they been? this involved in Republican slash conservative politics, I guess, slash media.
5: Right. Um, so, uh, you know, people outside of the Republican world, the name Mercer is it, it, very new, right? We've all heard of the Kochs and Sheldon Adelson. You know, They've been around Republican politics for a long time. The Mercers... Um, uh, matter in this context, that the, the two Mercers who matter are Robert Mercer, the 70-year-old um, former computer scientist who, in his 50s, um, uh, became a very, very, very wealthy and successful uh, hedge fund uh, financier at a, at a place called Renaissance Technologies. Which is known for being a very sort of anti establishment hedge fund, and they typically don't recruit from Wall Street. they want different kinds of brains and they they they've had extraordinarily good returns and um the sort of the algorithms and the data, you know, the, how how they use data is all kept very secret um and it it's it's um quite a mysterious place he's the one who has all the money he then has uh, a wife and three daughters. And the middle daughter, Rebecca Mercer, who's 43 years old and, and very tall um, and sort of striking looking, is um, much more articulate than her father, who is famously sort of reclusive. He much prefers talking to cats than to humans. And um, he has uh, long held very, very right-wing views um, he you know he's told people at uh, inside this hedge fund that he really believes that you know people who don't earn very much money you know uh don't you know he doesn't sort of see them as worthwhile people they don't add anything to society um uh, they' are kind of negative um and um and I think nobody at, who heard these views thought, you know, sort of took them seriously mm. until 2010. And in January 2010, um, the Citizens United decision gets passed, um, which, of course, changes the political landscape completely because it means that individuals are now allowed, to you know, have, they can spend un, unlimited amounts of money uh, on candidates and um, political think tanks and causes. And um, Bob Murphy uses, you know, and this is when Rebecca, the middle daughter who's, uh, you know, I think got three or four degrees from Stanford and, and for spent a few years trading at her father's firm. But it, she's basically a housewife living in New York with who she homeschools her four children. So she has the time on her hands. Um, you know they started to attend um, the Freedom Summits uh, put together by the Cokes, who back then were the sort of linchpin of all these conservative um, mega donors. Um, but I think they began Rebecca, um, who who is the talker of the two, um, felt increasingly frustrated that they were not sufficiently tough uh, Mm. on trade and immigration. She also felt very annoyed that she wasn't being listened to. And uh, she really started to make a name for herself when Mitt Romney lost in 2012. All right, Vicky, let me stop you there. Vicky, let
8: me just stop you there um, and, and back up just a little bit, because, I mean, it's interesting. So we have this reclusive guy who uh, clearly does not sound like he's the type of person to set up some broad-based network, but when the shackles come off where your own personal wealth is really all you need to sort of qualify as a political player, uh, he begins to blossom. He does this through his his, uh, daughter. Rebecca who seems to function as his surrogate in some way. Um but do we have a sense of of I mean, where do they come from? Are they from New York? Do they live in New York City? Um where did uh, w- what do we know about um uh Robert Mercer's uh childhood or where he came from? I mean cuz clearly these guys are um are movement conservatives and they end up um I guess around this time in 2010 do, um, donating is probably the wrong word, or perhaps it's not, investing in Breitbart, which I am particularly right, interested no, 2000, in. Yeah, no,
5: 2011. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I'm, so I'm that's, particularly... Start, let me just... Yeah, they start to see what their money can do. Yeah, and then they start to invest in these platforms. That re, Breitbart was the first with the media platform, and then, well, you know, they, they buy the data analytics company to see if they, did that they... will make a difference. How
8: did they chooseright so, so Vicky how did they Vicky how did they choose yeah. Breitbart? I mean, I asked this because I at that time followed Breitbart, the site and the man quite closely, and that site was not making any money and I remember when not- that uh when that um that secret essentially investment came in i mean I've looked at the filings uh over the years. And it was unclear where this money came in, but it came in in one big lump sum, uh, and he was ready to revamp the whole thing right before he died. Um, but what? Why, how did they just decide Breitbart? Was it just simply his politics? Because the interesting thing about Breitbart is, at that time, Breitbart was not at all interested, it seemed to me, in policy as much as he was sort of a cultural aggrievement
5: Culture. That's exactly exactly, Sam. You're exactly right. And this is where you you hit you hit the nail on the head. So that's exactly right. Andrew Breitbart was was interested in in changing the culture. He wanted, you know, right. He was as um, obsessed with changing Hollywood as he was with everyone, you know, everything else. And I think that was that. So so right there, that's what makes the Mercers. You asked me at the beginning what makes the Mercers different, okay? It's because they really want to blow up the entire system of Mm. American politics um, so that Americans, in their view, can regain its cultural roots, which they believe it has completely lost. They are terrified that America is becoming dangerously... Close to a sort of socialist Europe, and the Americans—they, you know—they—they they want restored is the you know sort of competition, enterprise, and um, they believe that the only sort of way, having you know watched the Mitt the Mitt Romney campaign uh, lose, they, you know, I think they believe that that. It's going to be a multi-pronged attack. Breitbart is one way to really hit the culture. Okay, and and after Andrew died, one of the reasons they then really trusted Steve Bannon, who took it over, was that you know Steve Bannon is a former uh, Goldman Sachs banker,
2: hmm. and
5: he did um, really. Uh, you, you know, help, help write that ship financially. I mean, obviously he had their money, but it was, it, it was a bit of a, you know, I, I think it was much more precarious when Andrew was, was, was alive. He also, um, you know, I mean, Steve Bannon, as we know, is this, um, extraordinary populist. And, um, he, he, you know, so he created it into a vehicle with a much more populist, widespread, um, heal so that was that was right up what the masters um, wanted to do it's
8: hard to face the future when you have to watch your back follow
6: all the money I see where it stops the traces
2: Can you talk about when they first met, the Mercers, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, first met Andrew Breitbart, and uh, what that progression was, and how they came to be linked up with um, with Bannon?
1: Well, sh- sure. Um, the, the 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 Mercer family, um, Robert and his daughter Rebecca um met Andrew Breitbart back I think it was late uh, 2011 or early 2012 speaking at a uh, conference of the Club for Growth another right wing group and they were completely taken with Andrew Breitbart he's a uh, um pretty much the opposite kind of character from Bob Mercer he at Breitbart Um, was outspoken and gleefully provocative and and loved to offend people and use vulgar language just to catch their attention. And you've got this kind of tight-lipped, um, hedge fund man from the far right who just fell for Breitbart big time. And he, mostly what he was captivated by, I think, was Breitbart's vision, which was we're gonna, we, he said conservatives can never win until we, um, Basically, take on the mainstream media and build up our own source of of information. He was talking about declaring information warfare in this country um, on fact based reporting and and substituting it with their own vision and um, And what he needed, Breitbart at that point was money. He needed money to set up Breitbart news, which was only just sort of a a couple of bloggers at that point.
2: And talk about Breitbart News, uh, about uh, what the alt-right represented, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism or white supremacy, and why they were attracted to this.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it, it changed. What happened was—I mean, it, it started as a—Andrew um, Breit, 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 Breitbart had helped the Huffington Post get set up, and his idea was that he was going to launch the Huffing, Huffington Post of the right. Um, and, and, um, and so he was setting it up and, um, his, his very close friend was Steve Bannon. And Bannon had been in investment banking. So Bannon got the Mercers to put $10 million into turning this, uh, venture into something that was really going to pack a punch. Um, and, and, and they were just about to launch it in a big day, a big way. They were a few days away from it when Andrew Breitbart died. Um, that was in March of 2012. He was only 43 and he had a ho- sudden massive heart attack. And so this, this operation was just about to go big. Um, it was leaderless. And that's when Steve Bannon stepped in and became the head of Breitbart News. And in Bannon's hands, it became a force of uh, economic nationalism, and in some people's view, white supremacism. It ran, um, a, a, you know, a, a regular feature on black crime. It, um, it hosted and, and pretty much launched the career of Milo Iannopoulos, who's sort of infamous for his kind of juvenile attacks on, on women and, and, uh, immigrants and, God knows what you know just it, it became a um as Bannon had said, a platform for the alt right, meaning the alternative to the old right, a new right that was far more angry and um aggressive about others, people who were not just kind of the 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 white uh sort of conservatives like themselves
2: so they made a ten million dollar investment in Breitbart. they owned 10 it million. co-owned it.
1: They, they became the sponsors really behind it. And, 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 and it's interesting to me that one of the things I learned was that Rebecca Mercer, um, this heiress who's had no experience in politics, is so immersed in, in running Breitbart News at this point. I mean, she, her family is the money, big money behind it, that she, she reads every story, I'm told, and, and fly specs, you know, typos and, um, you know, grammar and all that kind of thing. I mean, th- there, there is a force behind Breitbart News that people don't realize, and it's the Mercer family. Um, so, um, anyway, it became very important, increasingly, on the fringe of, of conservative politics, because it pushed the conservatives um, in this country towards this, this economic nationalism, nativism, anti-immigration, pro—you know, harsh borders, um, anti-free trade, um, protectionists. And it spoke the language of populism, but right-wing populism. Love it.
3: As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three
4: years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750
9: million people. That was how Richard Nixon announced that he would visit the People's Republic of China in 1972. And Nixon did go to China. He went along with Henry Kissinger. And Nixon held his historic meetings with Chairman Mao Zedong.
8: China is ripping us off. You know who's getting the oil? China. What China is doing to us is horrible.
9: This week, Nixon's heir apparent or heir apparent, Donald Trump, is meeting with the current leader of China, President Xi Jinping. Now, this historic meeting is not taking place in China. It's taking place at Trump's Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago. We understand that President Xi does not golf, so the visit could pose some issues for Donald Trump. Now, when Richard Nixon set up his meeting for uh, China and to meet with the leader of of China, he used his emissary, Henry Kissinger, to lay the groundwork for that trip. Donald Trump also has his own emissaries, people like Steve Bannon and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Last December, Bannon-Kushner- and General Mike Flynn, who you'll remember was briefly Trump's national security advisor, they had a secret meeting with the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nayan in New York City. And that's according to the Washington Post. What they discussed in that meeting, we don't know. But then the story gets really interesting. A few weeks after that meeting in New York involving Bannon and Kushner and General Flynn and the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, the sheikh helped set up a meeting in the Seychelles Islands for an unofficial emissary of then president-elect Donald Trump. And that unofficial shadow emissary was none other than the notorious mercenary and founder of Blackwater, Eric Prince. Now, according to the Washington Post, that meeting uh, was in part intended to put Eric Prince in the presence of Russian officials. And the meetings were supposedly, according to the Post, a way that a back channel could be set up for communications between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Now, I reported in January for The Intercept that Eric Prince had been a secret advisor to the Trump administration. Now, of course, Prince and his family were major bankrollers of the Trump campaign. Prince's sister, Betsy DeVos, is the education secretary. And to flesh out this whole situation of Donald Trump's secret little prince, I'm joined now by the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, Betsy Reed. Betsy, welcome back to Intercepted. Hey, Jeremy. Now, the reason, Betsy, that I wanted to discuss this with you is that you and I have worked on the Blackwater Eric Prince story going back to 2005 when you were- my editor at The Nation magazine, and you also edited my book, Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army. So you and I have been immersed in this story for many, many years. What was your reaction when you saw that Eric Prince, that that the Washington Post reported that Eric Prince had been involved with a back-channel meeting in the Seychelles involving the United Arab Emirates brokering a meeting between Eric Prince as a kind of emissary unofficial for donald trump and russian officials
10: well i mean on one level it's shocking right because this is a man who's like so notorious and so discredited and has been at the center of so many horrifying scandals that he could be playing this role and again you know at the center of the news it's just it's kind of amazing right but You know, as you essentially predicted it, you wrote the piece um, about how Eric Prince was advising Donald Trump from the shadows. And, you know, you've also written about Mike Pence and how uh, ideologically it actually is not surprising at all to find Eric Prince right at the center of the, uh, the Trump administration, given his sort of similar Christian supremacist worldview. So for people who don't know who Eric Prince is, how would you sum that up?
9: Well, I mean, he was the, the, the son of a, a billionaire and he inherited a huge amount of money. Uh, his family was a very powerful right-wing uh, Christian, uh, financier of very extreme right-wing political figures and movements in the United States. And he served, uh, unlike a lot of children of billionaires, he, he enlisted in the U.S. military and served, uh, as a Navy SEAL in Haiti and Bosnia and elsewhere. And when his father died, uh, and his, his first wife was dying of cancer, Prince left the Navy SEALs, went home, Help settle the family, the selling of the family business. He took his share of the inheritance and bought a huge plot of land in the great dismal swamp of North Carolina and started what became known as Blackwater security and training. And in the late 1990s, when Blackwater was created, uh, this was pre 9-11, the main business model of Blackwater was not to provide mercenaries, it was to provide training for the US military But also training for law enforcement that were going to face down against the violent youth of America's schools. The Columbine Massacre had just happened and Eric Prince came up with this idea to build a mock high school in his swampland called Are You Ready High? Like the letter R, the letter U, Are You Ready High? And the idea was to train SWAT-type forces to deal with school shootings. 9-11 9-11 happens, and Eric Prince was interviewed on Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News, and he says to Bill O'Reilly that you know before 9-11, people didn't really get what he was about, and now his phone is ringing off the hook. And and what basically happened is that a very powerful figure in the CIA at the time named Buzzy Kroengard was friends with the Prince family, and he would take his kids to Eric Prince's uh, Blackwater to help to let them like shoot on his range. Buzzy Krongard and Eric Prince made a deal that Prince would recruit a network of former Navy SEALs and other special operatives uh, that could provide a kind of deniable force for the CIA in the early stages of the war in Afghanistan. And Eric Prince actually deployed with his initial team uh, in a small village on the Afghan-Pakistan border called Shkin, and they set up an outpost that they called the Alamo. And basically, that was the beginning of the gold rush for Blackwater providing covert services to the CIA and later overt services to the U.S. State Department.
10: I mean, he's long identified as a libertarian, right? So he believes that government functions should be outsourced. And he has used that model in the realm of security and um, military operations in order to create these forces that then operate w- with impunity, with without the accountability that is forced on government forces. Is that right. right?
9: E- exactly. And li- libertarian in the sense, I mean, there is one interesting thing. Eric Prince has spoken very critically of Barack Obama's uh, own strike killing of uh, Anwar al- al-Awlaki and it's not that Eric Prince has any you know admiration or support for al-Awlaki but the idea that the president of the United States was ordering the assassination of uh, an American citizen who hadn't been charged with a crime I-, I wonder if it had been bush or cheney if prince would have taken that position but he did take that position which Sounded very similar to that of Ron Paul when he was running his insurgency campaigns.
10: But Blackwater itself was involved in secret assassinations. Uh,
9: of yeah, and they and their men were accused in court documents from whistleblowers in the company uh, of of doing night hunting in Iraq, where they were randomly killing Iraqis. And uh, whistleblowers in the company said that Eric Prince set an overt agenda of Christian supremacy, that this was a war of civilization, and that uh, essentially all Muslims were were fair game. So you know he, he supported Pat Buchanan's insurgency campaign against George W. Bush in, in 1992 in the election uh, in, the, in the Republican primary because he said that the Bush administration was too liberal on social issues you know like gay marriage and etc he was an intern in George HW Bush's White House but you know the, the essence of, of Eric Prince's elevator pitch to the national security apparatus is I want to do for you, what FedEx does for the delivery of packages and mail in this country it's much more effective than the post office and let's run the CIA and the military more like FedEx rather than the post office
10: and key to that is secrecy right is is the ability to operate in the shadows as he's tried to do in in his relationships with Trump
9: right and 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 this is classic Eric Prince where Part of privatization means that you are, and layering things in subcontracts and outsourcing parts of it to this person, this company or that individual, uh, is that it makes it very difficult for congressional oversight bodies to actually know who the hell is doing what, uh, and for how much money. And we saw that repeatedly in the investigations of Blackwater and, and Halliburton and KBR. It's like, who holds the actual contract and who are we hiring to do this stuff? That was part of the worldview that Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld Their careers were defined by the idea that the executive branch of government, particularly when Republicans are in power, should operate as an effective dictatorship over national security policy and Congress should only play the role of financing what the president determines to be necessary.
10: I mean, can you believe he's back, Jeremy? I mean, he's sort of like your white whale.
9: <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, uh, you know, it never ceases to amaze me how often this guy pops up, and you know, the fact that his sister is the education secretary, I think, is only relevant in the sense that they share the same kind of ideological view. She wants to do for education what Eric Prince wants to do uh, for the military, and the fact that they they pour huge sums of money. Uh, into these campaigns, including the Trump campaign. But Eric Prince is a very brilliant, uh, an evil sort of genius, very forward thinking. And at times he has sort of talked about how leftists and the Democrats in Congress, you know, ruined Blackwater. You know,
0: the anti war left went after the troops in Vietnam. This time it was easy to go after contractors. The kind of work we did, my family background, all the rest made it a very easy
8: target. And I'd have done it too if you kids hadn't come along.
9: And it's almost like a Scooby-Doo type thing where it's like I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those, you know, rascally kids. Um, But the guy, you know, has has, uh, an incredible ability to survive. I mean, you know, if the apocalypse comes, uh, which they all think it will, uh, I think we're going to have Radio Shack, Cockroaches and Eric Prince. They'll all somehow survive the apocalypse.